0: Hi everyone, it's Andy, and before we begin, I just want to point out that in this episode we discuss coronavirus and COVID-19, and at the time that we recorded, there had been no confirmed cases in the state. However, about 20 minutes after we finished recording, the news came out that the first confirmed case has been diagnosed in Tulsa County, a man in his 50s who reportedly just returned from a trip to Italy where the outbreak uh, is much higher. Just to reiterate, there still have been no deaths in Oklahoma. There's only been 14 deaths nationwide in the United States. While last year, in this last year alone, there have been more than 50 deaths from the seasonal flu. Our goal in this discussion about that during the episode is not to be dismissive. It's also not to induce panic. I think on behalf of both Scott and I, a physician and someone who's worked in infectious diseases for 10 years, is to simply convey that We as the public and the community have a responsibility to be prudent, but not panicked about this. Um, Wash your hands, you know, don't go out when you're sick, things that we should all do anyway, that often we don't do with the seasonal flu, um, even though it is also a serious condition. So with that, let's get on to the episode. (laughs) Hey, everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I'm joined, as we are every week, by our usual crew to my left, Dr. Scott Nelson. Hello, sir.
1: What's up, man?
0: No scrubs for you today?
1: No, not today. In not your
0: today. In your common Clark Kent common wear. Is that what that is? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Bailey Perkins, across the table. Hello.
2: Hello, everybody.
0: Thank you. And at the sports desk, Neil the intern. Hello, Neil.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. All yeah. right. I've been looking forward to that music like for like three days now. Scott,
0: you can just listen to it on Spotify whenever you'd like. I do that sometimes. <laughs> I do too. My kids don't understand. All right. So this week, we're going to be a little bit different. We'll talk some about Oklahoma politics because that's what we do here. But we also want to talk about some well, like national level stuff because this week was Super Tuesday. Super
2: Tuesday. Wait.
0: And, sh- that, that was this week? Yeah. You remember. Oh, We've texted about it all week. Um, Scott was having a in for some 538 model talk here and they didn't have the model up until today right for like freaking
1: three days they didn't have the model up and i was like how scott was scratching him so i gotta
0: i gotta hey guys i gotta have the model i gotta where's the model
1: <laughs> i think i was texting Andy, I'm like what i was like what the hell did like did super tuesday like break the model and then Nate silver tweeted last night i was like so uh the incredible volatility the race after Super tuesday has required us to uh think some of the coding and the model, and I was like, Super Tuesday broke the
0: model! That was a decent Nate Silver impression. Thanks, man. Um, So we'll talk about Super Tuesday, winners, losers, turnout, all that kind of jazz. We also want to deviate from straight-up politics to talk about the coronavirus, because it gets closer every day. So we're going to talk about Oklahoma's response to that and just some general information. Scott, you're a physician. I used to work in infectious diseases. Feels like a topic we should cover at least in brief. We can handle this. Uh, in case it's in case you have to tune out early, just wash your hands. And that's really the the bulk of it. With that and as everyone on the internet has pointed out, excellent advice for every other day of your life as well. Yep, regardless. Uh, and then we'll kind of roll from there into some other healthcare related things. Healthcare agency consolidation, late breaking updates about the Medicaid expansion, efforts and, and proposed things here in the state. And then we're going to end uh, just with a recap of something that we, I think we talked about in brief last week, but came uh, came back up this week, reared its ugly head. And then any other bills that uh, that we think of while we're talking. That's usually what happens. Yep. And another thing. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, uh, on that case, let's start out with Super Tuesday. Scott, I see you opening up a secondary device for another screen. I assume this is going to be,
2: well, I think it'll be important for our listeners to know like, why it's called Super Tuesday. Oh,
0: that's a great idea, Bailey. Tell us.
2: So Super Tuesday um, is the terminology where we refer to uh, the big primary day during um, the presidential election season every four years. And it's the day that I believe that 14 states vote in the presidential primary. So they call it Super Tuesday because it gives a significant indicator on what the elections will uh, look like, and it's the reason why so many candidates made the decision to drop out either before or after Super Tuesday, based on um, the polling data and the outcomes of that
0: yeah primary I, election. So last week when we recorded, uh, who had had Buttigieg and no. Klobuchar dropped out? No? no,
1: it was before we recorded before South Carolina. So oh, that's right. So a lot has happened in the past week. Thank you, Neil. Um, it has been arguably, I think. I mean, I think one of the most volatile weeks in like national mm-hmm, politics
0: mm-hmm. that I can
1: that I can remember sort of volatile
0: like. in terms of like numbers and changes and that stuff, not like human on human violence.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, like let's just just kind of say, oh, where were we a week ago? So a week ago today, right? Today's Friday the sixth. A week ago today, the South Carolina primary hadn't happened yet. If you went to the 538 model, which is, of course, the gold standard in my opinion for like election forecasting, you would have seen that Bernie Sanders, um, despite probably going to lose South Carolina to Joe Biden by about ten points, um, Bernie Sanders was still the odds-on favorite for a plurality, if not a majority, of the delegate count in the Democratic primary. Right. That was like a week ago today. Fast forward seven days. Um, you had uh, Joe Biden win South Carolina, not by 10, but by 30. Instead of <laughs> instead of uh, Bernie Sanders racking up a 150, uh, 150 delegate or so, 200 delegate lead on Super Tuesday, um, Joe Biden won 10 of 14 states. We still don't have final counts, but De- Joe Biden may well come out with the delegate lead overall from Super Tuesday. He's ahead and, by 70 right now. And then now, today, if you look at the 538 model that they turned back on this morning, um, you would see that Joe Biden is uh, given a seven and eight chance, seven times out of eight, that he will have not just a plurality, but a majority of delegates making him the presumptive Democratic nominee before the convention. That is a sea change.
0: Right. So so basically, a week ago, we thought Bernie might have a chance or he may even win. And now it's pretty clear that it looks like Biden is going to get the nomination. Is that a good summary?
1: I mean, I mean, I'm it's simplifying. A- it is, but the reason that it's important, it's not that, it's not that you can't simplify or like the simplifying is, is always good, but it's important to remember that within that, that estimate, there is a fair degree of uncertainty, right? Like, uh, And the, sure. the uncertainty exists because things have been so volatile, right? Like looking at the state of the race today, that's what it looks like would happen. You would say Joe Biden is in a very, very strong position and certainly he is the, I would think, undisputed front runner, but with like, I think the confidence intervals on either side of that are like wide.
2: Because everything depends on who turns out and that's unpredictable until election day
0: right so. so so what happened this week with turnout it was it was not what they expected right um, it's in certain places I think well I will I will start by saying notably every Super Tuesday state had a, a significant increase in turnout over four years ago, except one Oklahoma. We were the only state that had a decrease in, in overall voter turnout for the primary election, which was that again we were on the news for a not good reason. I think Virginia almost doubled turnout from four years ago, which I think is a, like mind-boggling that we like think about it, if Oklahoma doubled turnout, how crazy that would be.
2: When in addition to low turnout, the outcome was different than the previous. 16 elections that's true because bernie so, won right absolutely and so i know scott and i have talked about this of it looking like a not hillary vote more so than uh-huh. um a significant support for bernie which could reflect in the numbers of why there were, there were lower turnouts this the right. this election cycle
1: yeah i also think too like when you look at like there's you know certainly there's no arguing that turn on Oklahoma was down like what 9% I think across the board uh-huh. um it was actually up in Oklahoma City like the Oklahoma City area in Tulsa uh-huh. it was down everywhere else I was going to ask so, if you had a chance to look into that yeah yeah so it was, uh, so it's up here but it's down everywhere else so that um I, th- I think that's what I, I believe that's I believe that's the information that I that I got I'll double check that here real quick um but um that kind of makes sense right like it's a dem primary so the places where you're going to see like higher turnout is where there's the most Dem voters. We've seen that democratic voters have been decreasing all across Oklahoma in the last decade, but particularly in rural areas, more so than the urban areas. So well, one, would... there
2: were also a lot of assumptions from people that there was just a dim primary, right. that Republicans didn't have anything to vote on this cycle. When there was also for some counties, a state question about whether or not we'll have liquor stores open on Sundays and um, another one for Oklahoma city for a 10th of a penny sales tax on, I mean, to, in, uh, to benefit state parks. And so there was, that probably is another contributing factor to yeah. not understanding that there was more to vote on as well.
0: Which which is interesting because so like turnout between the two parties was almost even altogether 303, well, almost 304,000 Democrats and independents, 304,000 people voted in the democratic primary And 295,000 people voted in the Republican primary. Of course, President Trump won overwhelmingly, as we knew he would. That's often the case with the incumbent. Um, Zoltan only got 1,300 votes. Sorry, Zoltan.
1: Yeah, so it looks like it uh, looks like the in the in the Dem primary. So the the Dems saw a five percent drop in statewide turnout, but they did make progress in the Oklahoma City metro and in the Tulsa metro. So, so like so.
0: Democrats are getting more consolidated in the <clears throat> metro areas. The rural urban divide grows.
1: Mm-hmm. We have right. to make special music for the urban rural divide.
0: We reference that quite often. Yeah, I don't know what that would be yeah something but, from the great divide perhaps but it
1: is um it, it was it was it's just been a, it's been a really fascinating week you know we're still counting kind votes of from california um um you know i think the interesting thing is now so if you're if you're a not if you're a not i'm gonna div, if you're a, if you're a bernie fan the road ahead might be it's a it's a tough road to hoe, i think um mm-hmm. you know bernie bernie sanders best states arguably were on super tuesday um california in particular <clears throat> it was thought that he would do well in Texas. Joe Biden ended up winning that state. Um, so when you're looking ahead to like Florida, um, right now there's a pullout this morning that has Bernie Sanders underwater uh, to Joe Biden by 49 points in Florida. That would be, you know, like that's like 200 and something delegates. So if, mm. if, if there's no other candidate that's at, at viability in Florida, Joe Biden gets all of those statewide delegates. Um, Michigan, um, Michigan's really interesting because in 2016, Michigan is the primary that Bernie Sanders won um, that really kind of, launched his, like, kind of comeback um, towards uh, Senator Clinton and made it, like, a race there towards the end. Um, whereas now, uh, I think Joe Biden's ahead in Michigan, but, like, seven or eight points. Uh, Michigan's governor um, inter- uh, in- endorsed Joe Biden yesterday, mm-hmm. I think. So he's expected to win Michigan. Um, I mean, I could be wrong. I think if he, like, that's – if he gets all the delegates at Florida and, like, the vast majority out of Michigan, I think the race is probably over. From yeah. A, like, like, it's – uh. What's that saying? It's it's all over but the something? Family things. Fat well no, there's something. There's like it's all over but the I don't know. Kitchen sink. I think it's a sports ball reference.
0: Is this another another family guy thing like last week?
1: It's all over but the crying. That's what I'm talking about. Ah.
0: But I don't know. Is that a I song? I haven't heard that one. It's a I've song by the Ink that. Spots. <laughs> we need to bring back some of those old uh musician artists' names, the Ink Spots, the Commodores. They were good. A lot of good names. Yeah. Decades ago, maybe they all got taken. That's why. That's what we got crap now. Like, I don't know. Creed. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> are uh, they still a thing? Sure. Sure. I don't. I. Re- I don't know. Um, the other thing that may be notable about turnout is that so that a lot we know that a lot of uh, Bernie support comes from younger voters, and they are certainly vocal and and active on social media. So it often I think you hear pundits say and maybe us that it feels like there's a lot of support and cuz there is but that's a, that what it felt like did not translate to turnout right so turnout among younger voters was very low um, kind of across the board lower than 16 actually yeah
2: but that's also consistent generationally so yeah but from decades to decades the voter turnout for mm-hmm. younger voters are always significantly lower than our seniors because our seniors are going to take that time to Right. go vote. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really interesting dynamics that that's not only consistent over time but it's even factored in significantly to shaping uh Bernie Sanders.
1: Yeah, Neil, do you guys have something better? You have something better to do on Tuesday? I'm 17, <laughs> 11 months, so it's not my fault. <laughs> Why do you have a
0: for I, I assume you have friends that are able to vote? Yeah,
1: I think I think. If you compare it to 2016, I think there's some differences in the primary. So, uh, 2016, the frontrunner would have been the first female president, I think, was exciting for a lot of people. And then you have Bernie, who is was really new and exciting for a lot of people. I think now um, there's been a lot of outla- or, uh, yeah, outlash towards Bernie. Again, a lot of people online don't like Bernie. Um, it's not as new and exciting, maybe, as it was in 2016. And the other frontrunner is a man who is 80 years old, who... Um, hey 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 hey! He is seventy-eight. 70. You. aren't they both seventy-eight? Isn't Bernie also seventy-eight? I think actually seven. I think, actually, I think oh, Bernie's okay. actually seventy-eight and Joe Biden seventy-seven. I think, oh. or maybe it's vice versa. I don't yeah. know who's counting. <clears throat> but you know, it's it's not it's not a candidate that is necessarily as interesting to younger voters. Right. Um, more establishment. More. Uh, he's an older white man, not a you know, not somebody that's gonna be really interesting
0: you know i i know that there are some folks that are certainly you know individuals are enthused about a particular candidate but i felt overall like the general electorate aside from those that are the most involved just my sense is that people are not enthused about the the democratic primary these candidates everyone's like "Ah, they're they're fine i'll vote for whomever but It didn't have the same kind of passion that I think, and maybe this is not fair, but I think we often compare it to Barack Obama in 2008, right? Which is a once in a generational kind of thing. You might go back to Clinton or JFK or, you know, whatever that had similar kinds of turnout. And maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I think people are tired, right? Mm -hmm. Also, we're trying to fight a pandemic. Go ahead.
2: Well, not just tired, but I think there's also disappointment that out of the line of candidates, you end up with two older white men um, out of the diversity of candidates that we've seen. We saw the first LGBTQ candidate. We saw um, several women. We saw um, a black woman and uh, an additional black man and Cory Booker mm-hmm. being on um, the ticket. And um, so I think there is lost energy from what appears to be more in the same. And so now the fight is not necessarily, you know, how the party or the the presidency advances to you know expand guest uh, diversity in that way, but more of the moderate versus far left divide, right. which isn't as ingrained for those who aren't deeply entrenched into um, politics or or um, policymaking. Right. I
1: mean, yeah, I I for sure think that there. I think there are elements of I think that there are elements of all of that. That is correct. I also think too that there, I think there is. I think one difference between now and and eight and now and sixteen, um, and this is not like I can't. I wish I could take credit for this theory, but I'm not that, that sharp. Uh, um, this is something that um, Brittany Packnett, who is an activist, um, she hosts a podcast called "Podsay the People" on Crooked Media. She's written some about this on Twitter. Uh, Lisa Sheeran Harper has written some about this on Twitter. That there's I think that there's a sense that one that, that one thing that, that's different now is in 2000, 2008, It was like there's a blank slate, mm, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't have an incumbent president, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now the the economic kind of crash had just happened, so that was on people's mind certainly. But um, you know, I think that there's a lot of fear in the country right now. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think there are a lot of people that um, are are feeling the effects of the last four years in a lot of ways and are very um, um, scared for themselves or their communities if we have, you know an, another four years with, with President Trump and some of the policies that he's put forward. Um, and so I think that there's a sense among some communities maybe that it's not that, it's not that these candidates, there's not anybody that might have been inspirational. But like, maybe now is not the time to take a chance on somebody that's inspirational. Like, there's a retreat to a, cho- a candidate that feels safe mm-hmm. um, because winning seems to be more important than policy.
2: But the complication with that is, even with people going to what they know, there's still not cohesion that's building among. Democratic voters. And so there's still strong tension between the moderates versus the far left. And if you follow anybody on Facebook or Twitter in those conversations, those conversations are still getting pretty heated. And so it's not even clear that after the primary election, if Democrats are even going to be able to come together to coalesce to then focus on the November. 2020 race and so that's going to really be the key is can can the two factions end up coming together to then make the decision about this uncertainty for november and
1: and even if they do that still may not be enough to win the election right like you know i think that there is starting to be a realization that um you know i mean i think i think six months ago even i felt like there was a sense among some people that like oh come on like just just nominate, you know, nominate somebody, like nominate somebody who's not crazy and they'll win the election, right? right? Um, Man, I think if you look at this election in November and you don't think that President Trump is like the odds-on favorite, like I feel like you're not paying attention and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, like well, he's, an, in, he's an incumbent president. He has all the advantages that, that, is, that is, are associated with that. He has an incredibly sophisticated digital operation. He has an incredibly sophisticated fundraising operation. Um, David Plouffe, who was the uh, one of uh, President mm-hmm. Obama's advisors and campaign managers, has said like turnout will be up in 2020 um, among Republicans for sure. Like Deming, like he is really of the belief that like this is a kind of a 2004 election right, right. where like you're like it is not going to be enough for Dems to like turn out at the levels that they have in the past. Like th- like there is going to be turnout up among Republicans. President Trump is trying to mobilize people who may be sympathetic to him. That didn't vote in 2016. Mm-hmm. Like that's their target audience. And it's the
2: right messages and their simplified messages that drive yeah. people to turn out. Right. So that does make a difference. And
1: they got
0: something to lose, right? Like uh, his supporters are, don't want to lose that. And the other side, I'm I afraid, is not enthused. So we'll see what happens. Uh, also, two other things could impact the election this year. One, of course, is the economy, which is not doing so hot right now. So is my retirement account. Um, the other one is uh, a little virus um, or disease, wait to call COVID 19. And I saw this week that someone said you could say the term COVID 19 to the tune of Come On Eileen. And I can't not <laughs> sing it all day long now. And, that's and so I thought I'd
1: play it while we chat about it. When you play it in your head, do you sing COVID 19 or Come On Eileen? No. Well, this week it's
0: COVID 19. <laughs> um... Neil and I were grooving out to this before you guys arrived. So, I mean, it's a great song. It is. I haven't taken it so far as to rewrite all the lyrics, but man, it's such a catchy. This is this is feel good music. This is music we need right now when we're discussing a, a pandemic a of a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. and So that's isn't that uh, duplicative, right? Worldwide pandemic as opposed to a localized pandemic? That's not a pan is the the world piece. Yeah, sure. Pangea. Um so Scott, let's, uh, and Bailey, let's real quickly talk about COVID-19, which I believe is the disease and coronavirus is the type of virus, right? Yeah. So maybe, and it's not comparing the diseases, but HIV is a virus that causes a condition called AIDS, HIV infection, coronavirus infection. This one is called COVID-19. Yeah. Because it's the coronavirus from 2019,
1: yeah, man, it's here. We got cases in uh, cases in Washington. I think we got a case in Texas now, Georgia, New York, Colorado. Significant
2: number in call. I mean, Washington State. So. Yeah, like there's a and bunch people of, yeah. died.
1: Yes, we were looking. Um, six. six.
0: It's it's here, y'all. Um, it is not yet in Oklahoma. If the health
1: department website, the Oklahoma Department of Health, has a tracker on their page here. I think we should qualify that and say there have not been any positive tests at all. Right, that's right. Well, there's that's,
2: a story about a couple of pastors who have self quarantined right. because they said they had been around people who had contracted. Craig,
0: Craig Groeschel from Life Church, like the head head dude from Life Church. Yeah. Um, who uh, could crush it with his biceps, I think, but uh, has, yes, self-quarantined for two weeks because he's at some kind of conference, some kind of pastoral conference. In Germany, and the leader of the conference or one of the leaders of the conference has tested positive. So Interesting. Uh, Neil and I read earlier that the University of Washington has basically canceled all in-person classes, and they are basically canceling finals and telling people, you know, some professors will choose to have an online final but it's at the professor's discretion.
1: Or it could be whatever your grade is, is your grade. Right.
0: And so I'm, I'm sure half the students are like, yes, I'm no final, I'm out of here. And the other half are like, I need that test. But wait, wait, wait. It's it's March, right? Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So there's like, the midterms. But yeah, it said finals.
1: A couple months till finals.
0: Yeah. Maybe they're being proactive. Yeah. Letting students know now, do your homework. <laughs> right. Well,
2: and also there's been a lot of conversation among. Institutions, particularly universities about those that they're sending yeah. for uh study abroad mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, how to get mm-hmm. those students back and what the process and procedures will be.
0: Right. Cause you can bring mm-hmm. them back, but then it's like, well, but you gotta go sit in a tub for two weeks until you make sure you're not sick. So in Oklahoma on the health department website, it has the uh, a tracker so far, zero positives that have been confirmed five negatives, two that are pending results. So we'll see what happens. Um, Scott, I'm going to ask you for your opinion as a physician, and you don't have to give it. But um, do you think that this is being blown out of proportion at all?
1: So I think that that is actually, I think that's actually a really complicated question.
0: That's that's why we do here on the podcast <laughs> right. talk about complicated medical <clears throat> things and politics. You know,
1: <laughs> is this? I mean, if 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 if. What I think is that there is there is no. Also, let me make sure that I'm being clear here. Um, I am a doctor. I'm speaking only for myself, not on behalf of any institution for which I may work or have worked in the past or will work in the future. This is you don't speak on behalf of your wife either. I'm sure she'd. Yeah, like to This is my. <laughs> this is this is my own opinion. Um, so, you know, is there. Is this a, is this a serious thing? Sure. Anytime you have a novel virus that um, can make people very ill, that is easily spread, um, that's going around the world, yeah, that's a that's a big deal. I think if we're talking really honestly about what the danger is right now, I I think it's reasonable to say one we st- we still have a lot that we don't know, but based on what we do know. Um, and, and are learning the danger seems to be more like the panic rather than the disease itself right right, right? so
0: so but- I th- yeah I, I think it's important to say like this is serious in the way that you should take it seriously but you should not Panic about it and go buy your store out of bread, milk, eggs, and face masks. We've done that
2: with hand sanitizer. Right. Yeah. There are so many stores that are completely out. Right. So you Also, know,
0: it's so much so that Tito's Vodka had to tweet that like the recipe going around about... Don't use it for sanitizer. Yeah, there was like a recipe for how to use vodka to make your own sanitizer. And they were like, uh, just to be clear, our vodka's eighty proof. NIH and Wimps says it's got to be like... 80% like, so like that'd be 160 proof yeah so we don't qualify for sanitizer sure. I was like that is what a bizarre world that Hilarious a, that a,
2: Tito's is not liable if it right. doesn't work
0: coronavirus Tito's vodka's getting involved This has an impact on the bourbon industry Scott and I are gonna take it very right. seriously I mean, right
1: no I mean I think it is it is a big deal I mean but um but it's it's a big deal in the same way that like you know the flu is a big deal every year right this is a disease. From what we can tell, this is a disease that seems to um, it can make it can make certain people very very sick. The people that it seems to make very very sick are people that are either over about seventy or chronically ill or both. Right. Like right. if you fall into that category, then this can be a very dangerous virus for you. Now there are a lot of those people, so this is this is serious because part of our job as like you know, doctors, public health officials, and like the public at large, just as good citizens is to try and protect each other. So yeah, we need to all take it seriously. Even if you're a, an otherwise healthy 30 year old person, you need to take it seriously so that you can try and protect those people who might be more vulnerable, right? Um, You know, I think it is, you know, it, it is a, it's a tough disease to deal with because it seems that many, many people who are infected have minimal symptoms or maybe sometimes even no symptoms. And so it's very difficult to contain. You can't easily draw a line and say, based on this criteria, you should stay home. Or if you have these symptoms, you should stay home because the symptoms are so nonspecific. The symptoms could be consistent with flu or RSV or another strain of coronavirus or human metanumavirus or virus or any of the other dozen respiratory viruses that cause these kinds of symptoms every year. So, um, you know, I think the best analysis of this that I have read, um, is from a, a guy, I'll look at his name here in a second. He's an, epide- an epidemiologist, uh, at, uh, at Harvard. Um, and he said, you know, we actually have some really interesting data in this outbreak that we don't always have. He's like, imagine you could take roughly a thousand people. Some of them have the virus. Most of them don't imagine you could lock them up together for about two weeks where their entire environment is controlled and see what happens. Now, that's the kind of control experiment that you can't do ethically. However, when those thousand people are on a cruise ship and they're not allowed to leave, right. effectively what you have Aha. is you've got you've got a trial, right? And if you look at the population um, of uh, the populations of some of these cruise ships and you see, like, how many people got infected, how the virus is transmitted, what the, what the f- case fatality rate is. It looks like among those populations, the case fatality rate is about 0.85 uh, percent. And then, if you're a more at-risk population, more at-risk, it can be as high as two. Um, now, we do I want to really emphasize this: we don't know if that case fatality rate is uh, applicable to the general population. Like, we don't know that. Um, you know, if the virus has a case fatality rate of two to three percent, that's significant. That is significantly higher than the flu. That is a like a fatality rate of two, three two two to three percent is like, that's a big deal. However, I think there are good reasons to think that the case fatality rate is actually quite a bit lower than that.
2: Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned all of that because the case that they found in California of the elderly man who died came from a cruise, I believe, from Mexico to California. Yeah. And so that very scenario aligns with the the one case that they found where somebody had died he had some health challenges already prior to that and with that exposure being on the cruise ship
0: yeah so there are many reasons i don't have any desire to go on a cruise and this is yet another one yeah no, agree I agree i had a friend in high school that was on a on a budget cruise that was attacked by pirates in the caribbean i'm not uh, even kidding like, <laughs> she, she was on it was like a 300 person cruise ship like a real small one and they all to like they cut the engines and they all had to like line up on the deck, and they went around and got all their watches and jewelry and money, and they had to sit there for the better part of a day while the pirates negotiated with the coast guard. And eventually, the pirates left, and the coast guard came and had to were able to like fix the engines. And they had to no, they had to be towed back in. It took them like three extra days.
2: That sounds like a Netflix movie. Yeah, it pissed.
0: was nuts. Yeah, they got a they got a free cruise, and she's like, I don't think I
1: want it. But you know, I mean, I think the. I think the main take home right now is like, one, you know, if you feel sick, if you feel sick, one, stay home, right? Don't like feel like you're like, oh, I'm going to tough it out and go to the Thunder game or, you know, work or whatever. Like if you feel feel sick, stay home. Don't feel like you can't go see your doctor. If you want to go see your doctor, go see your doctor. That's literally what we're here for, right? Um, if you're not sick, make sure that you're covering your mouth. If you cough, that you're washing your hands, um, you know, just kind of taking these universal precautions. Um, and yeah, just be, be be cool, be 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 safe. Wash your hands. I don't. I don't think there's any reason for there to be like a a panic about what's going to happen when this shows up in Oklahoma. And I say when because it will. Right. Yeah.
0: There's there's no reason to panic at the disco, if you will. Indeed. All right. Well, let's um. So from one healthcare store to the next, let's move on to. What would happen? Well, not really what would happen, but the the subject of healthcare agency consolidation, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Steve Lewis over at the Oklahoma Policy Institute has a, a really great blog post from March 2nd about this uh, entitled, Proposed Consolidation of State Health Agencies Deserve Careful Planning and Consideration. And, um, it's a good read. It's not too long. I think it's important that Steve points out here that this is different, right? So than it has been in the past. So every every few years, uh, about I don't know, every ten years maybe, the whoever the governor is is like, you know, we should we should consolidate consolidate these agencies for efficiencies. And then ten years later, the next it becomes governor, too powerful, right? And then the government says, no, we should divide them up because it's it's too much. And then well, let's put them back together. And and so that's where we are now is that we're reconsolidating things that were broken up under Governor Fallon in some ways. Well. Didn't she create OMES or was that under Henry? Do you remember anybody? I do not remember.
2: I'll have to look that I up. I thought OMES
0: was under her, but who knows? Anyway, so a, a reconsolidation of, of some of these. And most notably, it's the Healthcare Authority and the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. And what would normally be a, you know, hundreds of pages bill, it's just a few lines. In fact, it was a shell bill that we talked about last week, right? That they inserted language just before the meeting, and it was passed along with a slate of other bills. Um, this has some big implications and the fact that they are considering some of these changes in the midst of Medicaid reform, and as we just talked about, a pandemic of some kind of infectious agent, right? So if you're shuffling the the line of power, right, the the hierarchy there for all these agencies, it can have an impact on their ability to respond to situations, right? And and also create some gaps. Right, create some gaps. People might leave that have had decades of experience and now they're gone and then and now you need that experience in order to like respond to a epidemic or something. So
2: one other piece that was raised in that blog piece that I thought was a great point is there were certain qualifications mm-hmm. in order to lead certain agencies. Yes. So for the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services you had to have a doctoral level degree you had to have 5 years of experience in the field and other factors and so what does that look like mm-hmm. with now consolidating all of the the agencies
1: what what are the qualifi- what are the qualifications now none a pulse yes yeah good I see. same to be same as they had to be the vice president
0: yeah
2: and to tap back into your question about when Oius was yes. created yeah. that yeah. was 2012 under Fallon it, it was, was called something else, but yeah. then they under changed it renamed it so so, they, so right. they
1: took all the like the services and like the i t and 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 put this all under one agency to kind of streamline things and thought they save money um, Have you guys heard like how's that how's that how's that They've gone? been trying to change it for years has it <laughs> so, has it worked out has it Been good well and
0: now and little things that that like affect regular folks, right? So as I think listeners know, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and so there's a uh, counseling licensing board does LPCs and LMFTs and a few other things. Um, and it used to be a part of the Department of Health. It was in the in the Health Department building there at Tenth Street uh, on the first floor. It was like you went there to get your licenses for counseling, and I think like barbers and daycares were all in the same office. And sure, yeah, <laughs> and. So several years ago, they broke it out. So they, they split out all of these boards and commissions into their own, you know, you can say, quote, agencies. And so that's when people talk about us having 700 state agencies. Well, they're not all an agency. Some of them are just a board with their own, like, revolving fund. And that was the reason was for greater accountability so we could see everyone's accounts separately. And so smooshing them back together will just put us back where we're, I think, to me, as a layperson, this signals to me that either either no one knows what they're doing or we're just treating symptoms all the time and never getting to the real heart of the issue. But that's uh, that's my opinion. All right, well, um, moving on from that, let's talk about Medicaid. So the governor had a couple of announcements this week, right? Um, yes, was that yesterday? The days are all running together. Right. Um, but it gov- was this week. Yeah, so the governor said that today, that this week he would... Be instructing the healthcare authority, who has the authority um, to send paperwork in to expand Medicaid tomorrow. Yeah, and so I um, I spoke with Amber England, who's running uh, the Yes on 802 campaign. The folks that are um, that are trying to expand Medicaid, um, and she was like, "Well, yeah, this is remarkable because the governor is basically." proposing to expand Medicaid unilaterally. Yeah. And yeah, on his own in almost the same manner, right. As what they're proposing with one notable exception, this would be expanded under just statutory law. If even that, that's an executive order, but what they're trying to do is a constitutional amendment. And I think their contention is yes, he may expand it, but they could retract it just as easily. And so the need for the state question remains to ensure that it is, it is there and can't be just, people can't lose their insurance equally unilaterally. Yeah.
2: Well, way. I think part of the rationale is to be able to say, look, we've done this. We don't need to do the state question. Sure, and yeah. so that's another possible, I guess, political strategy in yeah, the yeah. timing of trying to get this done because he has said publicly trying to get this done by July 1st. So
0: right. And I, you know, if I was uh, working on the, if I didn't, I'll say it this way. If I didn't want to expand Medicaid in this state and I was the governor, what I would do is expand Medicaid now, put it on the ballot, hope no one shows up, and then unexpand it, and then poof. In the end, you got the you got no expansion, which is what you wanted in the first place. Now, that's a super conniving way to do it, and I'm not saying I advocate for that, but I'm just saying like, I can see the strategy
1: there. However, I gotta think that's gonna be massively unpopular. So, <clears throat> so I've I've thought the same thing, and I I have, I just thoughts, and these are I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. These are not questions that I know the answer to. But one, um, I think you're I think you're right. I agree. Like it would be to expand it and expand it in this way so that the government because if you do it if you do it through SQ 802. Um, it goes in the Constitution and the governor and the legislature, they really don't have any recourse, right? Like it's in the Constitution and they like they can't like mess with it, really.
2: Put in those work requirements and the right. like, additional they can't do all that nonsense. So,
1: mm-hmm. um, whereas if they do it themselves, then they can like mess with it in the future if they want to. So that's the first thing. And so I think you're right, Andy, that like this is an effort certainly to try and say, hey, we we expanded Medicaid already. Um, you don't have to show up and vote for state question notice to um, the fine print says that we expanded Medicaid and did it in a way that we can still go back and change it later if we want to, Two, I think that to just try and get rid of it would be super unpopular people, right? Everywhere. Medicaid expansion has been done. Um, it's been popular. It's popular in Oklahoma already. We haven't done it yet. It polls very well. Um, so to, to do it and then try and take it away, you know, I don't know how politically palatable that would be, but I also wouldn't have thought that trying to take on the tribes would be super politically palatable. And that's something that's happening. Right. So that, you know, I don't think we can necessarily count on political, like, you know, uh, it not being popular, um, to, to, to necessarily be a bulwark against trying to undo it. The, the other thing though, and this is a process question. So if the governor expands Medicaid, Oklahoma is going to have to come up with 150 million bucks to pay for our part of it, right? Right. No matter no matter how it's expanded, we got to pay for it. Right. Now let's say that the governor, so the governor submitted the application today that says we intend to expand it. So assuming that that happens, the legislature is going to have to come up with 150 million dollars. If the governor then came back and like tried to like undo the expansion, right? That's 150 million bucks that the legislature has appropriated for something that doesn't, like, exist anymore, right? (laughs) Right. So what happens? Like, is there a special session? Does that go, like, does that money go into GR to be appropriated next year? Does it go into rainy day? Like, what happens to the money that they, because I can guarantee that if that's going to require the legislature to come back and, like, do something with that money, that's not going to be popular for them either, right? It Mm -hmm. depends
2: on where the money is put. So if the money is put into GR and they're saying we're, when it's time for the budget discussion that this money would be used for medicaid expansion mm-hmm. then it could be reallocated somewhere else in the future if Right. because you can't necessarily like earmark in that way so right. um that absolutely could be a a potential strategy if money is put into to gr so
0: How oh, interesting. Um so then I think that kind of brings us really to the end of uh, our thing we had to talk about. And I just want to touch on this cause it was a big deal this week um, is um, state question. No, excuse me. House joint resolution 1027, which is um, the, the measure that would be a, a legislatively referred measure. Um, if it passes, it's a joint resolution. So it has to go through both chambers, not signed by the governor, just goes to a vote of the people um, to change the, the process of um, several details about ballot initiatives or initiative petitions. As we said last week, this would basically double the number of signatures that are needed. It would change from a percentage of turnout in the last gubernatorial election to a percentage of the total number of registered registered voters in Oklahoma, and also how you'd collect them by congressional district. So I think uh, I've talked to several people who have been involved in the ballot initiative world for a while. And they've said, Bailey, that this would essentially render initiative petitions impossible in Oklahoma. Um, and, and then what does that do for the future of our state?
2: Sure. Especially in a populous state that likes to be engaged in decision making. We vote for everything from dog catcher all the way up. And so this definitely would be a blow to how Oklahomans fundamentally see themselves in the role of participating in decision-making in the state. And so we'll see, I guess, how palatable that'll be um, in the public's eye. Um, Should it get through, is it going through as a, um, it's a
0: joint resolution. So yeah. what I think is interesting, and Representative Pfeiffer is the one that's running this, uh-huh. is that it would have to be passed by a vote of the people, right? So there's a potential that this gets put on the ballot, I guess probably in June, if I was the governor. If So they've got to pass it out of both chambers here in the next month in order for that to happen. Um, but there's a chance it could go, you know, it's going to go on a ballot with another state question or questions, right? Sure. So it could go on June and like maybe Medicaid's on the ballot with it. Or which would help, which would presumably help Medicaid, right? Because people are going to come out and be angry about it. Or this one goes on the ballot in November and helps whatever questions are on that ballot. And it just seems like in an election year, kind of a bizarro thing to try to get through Absolutely. when when there's so many ballot questions that are um, the driving interested parties who are definitely going to vote against this. Sure. Um, Although with that said, I mean, I guess any year we have, you know, four to seven state questions and any of the turnout there is going to be people who care about state questions and, and would oppose this. And so I think this will be, this is a heavy lift, but it's not impossible. And, you know, I I, certainly, you know, as our listeners know, I am someone who is running a state question campaign. So I care about this. Um, it, It wouldn't affect any of the state questions that are out there. So Medicaid, criminal justice, recreational marijuana, Independent redistricting would, would would get through before this, but looking ahead, the reason that we have the initiative petition process in the state is because too often um, we feel like our, our government is not passing the laws we need them to pass, right? So things like Medicaid expansion have been talked about for 10 years. The legislature didn't do anything about it, and so finally it's up to us to pass it, and so...
2: One other piece too is it's agnostic to any type of ideology or belief right so you have those who may have the most conservative views posing initiative petitions mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to get something considered by the vote of the people mm-hmm. but you have some folks on the the far left doing the same thing and so I think you could potentially see you know a, a moment of strange bedfellows coming together on this particular issue because it does take a toolbox. I mean, a tool out of the toolbox from um, Oklahomans to be able to, to shape decisions in the state.
0: Right. And in our, our initiative petition process is already much more difficult than mo- many states. Not every state has it though. So I, mean, I think we're grateful there. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. It, it would, it, it's something that would hurt people of all political stripes because you, you know, Given the winds of change, you never know what side uh, of an issue you're going to be on, and you might care about it. And so this is a big deal. Um, yeah, so we've I think, seen
2: a range of issues over time, so it, it would definitely be concerning for many Oklahomans.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I, I, to that end, I expect we might see an opposition to this making strange bedfellows, right? You might have um, conservatives and Democrats actually agreeing that this is a bad deal for the state. So, all right, well, um, on that note, I think that brings us coming in hot there um that brings us to the end of the episode bailey it's just you and i left scott and neil just took off so um toodles to those guys um thanks for being with us uh bailey thanks scott and neil who've already left don't forget to subscribe and rate let's pod this on apple podcasts because that helps other folks discover us tell your friends uh go to our website let's fix this and be sure that you've signed up for our email list. Uh, I don't send many emails, but I'm getting ready to send one out probably over the weekend with some important updates about upcoming events and uh, some of this information about bills we've been discussing uh, as well as links to our podcast. So tell your friends, your parents, your mom, your dad, your uncle that you don't talk to that often. Let them know that this is a good place to get information and maybe even a a little bit of insight into Oklahoma politics. Let's fix this as a non-partisan nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. Remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.